I want you to join me in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, chapter number one. Ezra, chapter number one. I want to add my welcome to that of Pastor Dustin. If you are a first-time guest today, you're actually here on a very historic day for this assembly known as Meadow Baptist Church. Today is a day where we put before this congregation what has been uh, cast by way of vision, by way of question and answer sessions, by way of prayer meetings, by way of much dialogue and networking and planning through, uh, through different and various leaders in this assembly. We now put before this church at the end of the service today a vote to ratify what your leaders have been sharing with you for the better part of four months as we continued to seek the face of the Lord. Uh, I have a calling on my life today, an assignment today. It is my job to bring you Ezra chapter 1. It is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to bring you into Ezra chapter 1. Because this passage that I'm going to share with you in a message called The Beginning of Something Beautiful is a message that I believe has scripture that greatly parallels what you and I are looking at as a faith family, where one season is coming to an end and a beautiful beginning to another season has found us. And yet it is not enough for a group of leaders over successive months through prayer and planning, it's not enough for us to just say, this is what we're going to do. The way our church is structured is that before we make a move like this, we want to give every um, active member of this faith family an opportunity to say, yes, we trust our leaders. More importantly, we trust God working through our leaders. We believe that this is the will of the Lord to move forward into a new season. And so this morning, I want us to listen, not only with the ear, but I want us to listen with the understanding, with faith, with a heart postured before the Lord that recognizes several things, one of which, not the least of which is this, that God determines the times and the seasons. That means it is upon the sovereign Lord God to choose when to move forward, to choose when to stand still, and then when to choose to move forward sometimes in a new direction. The beauty of this is that the New Testament gives every single local church its foundational vision. What is that? Go into all the world and make disciples unto Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Any vision that doesn't incorporate that is not a vision that comes from God for New Testament churches. But what we're talking about in these recent days is the type of vision that is more akin to strategy. How will we define ourselves? What is God doing in our community? What has he raised up you to do in this assembly in a time such as this in the kingdom? And though all of the questions cannot yet be answered, we know one thing. Every journey begins with that first step of faith. And so together, we will make that first step of faith as one body with one mind, one heart, glorifying the Lord. If you're physically able to stand to honor the reading of the word of God, please do so now. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I use that just about every Sunday from time to time. People will ask. I use the ESV. And I'm reading out of Ezra chapter 1 this morning. Ezra 1, the first verse. 
in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem." You can be seated. There may be a lot of other more exciting passages that I could have shared on this pivotal day. Maybe even some of our leadership team are thinking, what is he doing in Ezra 1 on this Big Vote Sunday? Well, I'm going to tell you, when I read through these passages, and I have been in Ezra and Nehemiah for the better part of two months in my personal study, because much of what God was doing at that time in the nation of Israel has parallels to what he's doing in the body of Christ, I believe, particularly in this local assembly known as Meadow. Uh, We have a vision. The leaders have received it. We have done everything in our power to stay before the Lord, seeking his face. There have been fine tunings. There have been petitions made up to God. There's been in the midst a week of congregational prayer and fasting and then scattered throughout the last four months, there have been many other smaller fasts by individuals. There's been a lot of intercession going on. We have listened for the voice of the Lord our God. We have prayed together as leaders and sought the face of the Lord. And never, ever have I ever been a part of a leadership team where in such a pivotal time of decision, never have I ever sensed more unity. It is almost startling how God has knit our hearts together, and there has not been one single occasion among a breadth of leaders where there has been opposition within the ranks. That in and of itself has led me to believe, God, you are gloriously orchestrating something. And yet, what about you? The leaders, those with positions, those with titles, those with 
experience, those that have been placed by two different congregations, Cornerstone and Meadow, to lead and facilitate ministry. That's one thing for them to be on the same page, but what about the congregation? Now, my brothers and my sisters, this morning, let's learn from Ezra 1, and let's just listen to what God can do. I'm going to make a statement at the very beginning that I hope will resonate with you and reside in you even after today. What we decide today has little to do with the past, has a little more to do with the present, but is ultimately all about the future. What we decide today sets the table that thousands will eat off of in weeks, months, years to come. And if the Lord Jesus doesn't return first, then decades to come. What we decide today in a moment of stewarding a vote will literally communicate the direction for this assembly that our children, our grandchildren, and possibly some of your great-grandchildren, they will reap what we sow today. And so I am thrilled to be able to say, let's do this. Let's get into the Word of God. We're going back in time into Israel's history. They've been in exile, first in Babylon, then Babylon was conquered by the, the, the armies of Persia. And now they are in the end of their captivity as was prophesied by Jeremiah and God is getting ready to do a move that was going to shock them, many of them not anticipating, many of them perhaps thinking God had forgotten about them. Many of them might have been assuming that the way things had been their whole lives there in Babylon were the way things would always be. But God behind the scenes, never reacting to what was going on, but always orchestrating what was going on. God was about to make a move and it was about to leave heaven and his will in heaven was about to be made manifest on earth. It begins with this, the purpose is proclaimed. Verses 1 and 2. Now watch this. In Ezra 1, the purpose clearly originated with God. The Bible says in verse number 1 that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. This was no incidental individual. 150 years earlier, through the mouth, through the writing of the prophet Isaiah, God had named Cyrus before he ever was born into earth. God said, Cyrus will be my servant. I will use Cyrus. And here we are some 150 years later, and Cyrus is now a man who is the king over all of the land. He is, in effect, the most powerful human being on the planet at this time. And the Bible says that the sovereign hand of God reached down and began to mess with Cyrus's heart, began to stir his heart, that the most powerful man in the world, as pagan as he was, as polytheistic as he was, he was no match for the omnipotent finger of God who said, I am going to stir you up to do my purpose. It's an interesting Hebrew word there, translated stirred up in the ESV. It's a word that means to agitate. It's a word that sometimes means to wake up out of a slumber. It could be used to describe being disturbed or roused, but ultimately it indicates that God began to set in motion this plan, and the plan originated with God. The second thing to note about this purpose as it's being proclaimed is that purpose originated with God, but it proceeded through man. You see, my friends, when God determines to do something and he determines to do it through an individual, that individual has a response to give. Verse number one into verse number two, Cyrus made a proclamation. He put it in writing. It was an edict. 
This is what he said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, watch this, and he has charged me to build him a house, which is at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. When the Babylonians had come down into Judah, they destroyed everything. They tore down the walls. They burned the temple. They destroyed and took away Israel's glory. The northern tribes had already been in captivity, but the southern tribes of of, of Judah, Levi, and Benjamin, they were there centrally, and they were still allowed to be in the land. But when they, their kings and their religious leaders, turned their backs on the Lord, the Lord said, that is it. You've rejected my prophets. You've rejected my message. I will bring from the north those that will enslave you. And they carried them off captive and they ransacked the city. They left a few people there in the city and ultimately there was a population living there, but there was no glory for God there. And so now here it is that God said, the time has come The end of the prophecy through my servant Jeremiah has now found us. The time of the 70-year captivity will be coming to a close. And in order to make this happen, I will start with the most powerful man, the most wealthy man. I will work through Cyrus, my servant, and I will begin this process. And Cyrus, imagine this, cooperated. He's a pagan. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He probably has Yahweh among his other gods, but there was something that transpired. Historians, some tell us that somebody actually showed him the ancient prophecy, and he said, well, if it's written, then I'm going to do it. We have no clue what actually transpired. I will say this. The sovereign God of heaven had a conversation of some sort with Cyrus, a pagan man, and Cyrus said, I'm going to obey him. That house is going to be built back in Jerusalem. It's an awesome thing when God begins to move among his people. And God typically begins to work through an individual, then a small group of individuals. But ultimately, the work that God desires to do is only stewarded at the beginning by an individual or two. Ultimately, if it is going to be accomplished under the glory of God, it will take all of God's people coming together. But what a beautiful beginning here as God reveals that it is not beyond him to work through one man. Let me just give you something. When Dustin Pennington walked into my office in October of last year, my heart had already been stirred. I knew God was doing something. I didn't see Dustin or Cornerstone as being a part of that because I saw no specifics whatsoever. I knew he had knit my heart together with Dustin in friendship, and I knew that theologically we were on the same page, and I knew that missionally we were on the same page, but that was about all I knew. When I went up and did their men's retreat, and I met so many of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord was there among us, and we recognized that there was at least a spiritual brotherhood and a unity, and I knew I had made some good friends. But just shortly thereafter, when Dustin came into my office and humbly submitted to me what God had spoken to him, immediately, immediately it leapt in my heart, and I said, this is of the Lord. When Dustin said, Jeff, what would you think about God possibly marrying Meadow and Cornerstone together to become one new church. What Dustin did not know is a few days earlier, I had sat in a Cuban restaurant with another local pastor, and I had shared the burden of my heart with this pastor saying, there's got to be an assembly in our area with whom we could unite theologically and missionally that we might make a greater impact on our community. Dustin never knew that. I never shared that with anybody. And then in that moment, God working in Dustin's heart, God working in my heart, and here we are today. Hallelujah. Sometimes he just stirs the heart of a man. And when that man stewards what has been stirred, it spreads. Verses three and four. 
It's not enough for Cyrus in the book of Ezra to know what God has said to do. Cyrus says, here is the vision, here is the opportunity, but what would the people do? Because if the people don't move, the vision will perish. The servants are summoned. First, Cyrus gives in the form of an official edict an appeal to the family. Look at what he says to the Jews still exiled there. He says, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and then some specifics will follow. But look at where the appeal went. The appeal did not go to the Persian population. The appeal went to the the exiled remnant, the Hebrews, the people of Abraham, God's seed, Israel. That is where the appeal went to, and the appeal was this. I am going to speak to you, all of you exiles here in my kingdom, I'm going to speak to you, and what I'm going to say, this is what I want to wrap it in. May your God be with you as you're about to receive what I'm about to say. As very uh, important detail in any vision, I have a lot of good ideas. You will never hear about 99% of them. You know why? Because I'm not positive that God would be with me if it's just Jeff's good idea. There's a lot of things that leaders talk about in church leaders and elders meetings and servant leadership teams and even you among yourselves. There's a lot of things that we can do and people are so addicted to activity and motion that we have, we're have we a generation that has a hard time sitting still and waiting on God. And sometimes God's plans don't get done because we're too preoccupied trying to make our plans work. But when we'll get still and quiet and wait on the Lord, he begins to speak to us. And when we know that he's with us, we're told to put our hand to the plow and never look back. We're told to work the field that God has appointed. But that work is always done in the family. As I make application to where we are, I'm going to tell you, I thank God for the other churches that are around us. We have blossoming relationships with churches. And yes, we understand that we don't agree theologically on every I dotted and every T crossed. We understand that. I don't have to agree with everybody about everything in order to be their brother in Christ. If that was the case, you'd have about two friends, the person looking back at you in the mirror and whoever has the misfortune of being married to you if you have an attitude like that. Now, I'm I'm being honest, but that's the thing. If we're always looking for reasons to find division, they'll be there. But when I'm speaking about these other churches in our, our area, the ones that we're developing relationships with and networking with and seeking to come together for ministry, this coming Friday night on Good Friday, there will be representatives from all over this community from different churches coming here on Good Friday to enjoy a time of worship and reverence and celebration as we move towards the Easter weekend. You come. I believe it starts at 7.30. We're not actually putting it on, but we're going to be a part of it to worship. Why is that important? Because we want to have relationships as we march forward with other churches. But what I'm talking about today is an appeal to this faith family. We're not asking our friends over here to chime in, our friends over there to chime in on this vote. We're not asking what the people down the street think. We're coming to you because it is your covenant. It is your relationship. It is your home church. And so as we look at this, I want to acknowledge that there is freedom. Look in verse 3, an appeal to the family, but an acknowledgement of the freedom. Look at what Cyrus Edict says, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now notice this. It wasn't mandated that everybody participate. 
Not everybody was going to sign off. Some had gotten used to living in no man's land, i.e. Babylon, Persian captivity now. Some had become so accustomed to being servants and slaves and away from the place of blessing, away from the place of promise, away from the place of God's glory, they had become so accustomed to living in captivity that the call to go back and engage in the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears and prayers of being a part of what God is doing, to some it wouldn't appeal to them. Maybe they were old and they had said, we've been in Babylon, this is now home. We raised our kids in Babylon. Our grandkids were born in Babylon. We don't want to go through the long trek back to Jerusalem. After all, we've learned to live here. And in statements like that, they might miss the fact that, wait a minute, but you don't have your freedom. You don't have the bounty. You don't have the blessing. You don't have all that God has prepared for you. The time of chastisement for Israel had come to an end. God said, I'm taking you off of pause. You've learned the lessons. You were worshiping other gods in Israel, so I put you in a land where they worshiped other gods, and you'll never worship other gods again. By the way, since Israel came back to the promised land, since this remnant came back, they've always been monotheistic. They have never had a nationwide worshiping other gods. They don't have Baal. They don't have any of the other gods, Moloch, none of them anymore. They were broken of their idolatry in captivity. And God said, I'm going to bring you back to the land now. I know that you now know that I am your God and there is no other. And so some of them were going to stay, but some of them would want to leave. But I love the way that God moved Cyrus to frame it up. Let the ones who want to go, go. And many would. See, my friends, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. In case you're wondering, let me just say this. I know what I believe God wants us to do. I wouldn't be here preaching to you, leading in all of this, if I still had my, didn't have my mind made up about what I believe God's will is as we move forward towards this vote. So you know I'm going to put a big old fat yes on my voting card today. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have a voice too. And so I don't want to be manipulative, but at the same time, I don't want to pretend that there's any kind of fog of doubt in the minds of your leaders here. We are moving forward, but the fact of the matter is, is that like in Ezra's day, there may be some who don't have their mind made up yet. My hope is that we will leave the place where we have been and we will move into the place to which God has called us. By the way, quickly, verse number four, and This is just because I'm an addict of expositional preaching. I can't skip a verse, but it really isn't germane to what we're doing today. An acquisition of the funding. In verse number four, it says, Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of of God that is in uh, Jerusalem. Just very quickly here, I'm just going to make this application and run. Um. Anytime we walk in God's appointed vision, we receive God's appointed provision. There will be enough for whatever it is. You say, Jeff, what are we getting ourselves into? Something gloriously good. It's going to be sloppy. It's going to be messy at times. It's not going to be predictable all the time, but it is going to be gloriously good. And everything the Lord puts before us to embrace and reveals that to be his will, I promise you, there will be provision for it. Why? Because our hearts are going to be knit with his. And by the way, the provision doesn't necessarily come from the guy sitting next to me. Sometimes it's me and him and the person sitting here and the person sitting there. So what I'm saying is this. What he has planned for us, just as he did for Israel after 70 years of captivity. By the way, 
they, they weren't rolling in the dough. They were bottom of the barrel. They, they, they may have been prospered somewhat in Babylon, but generally speaking, they would not have been loaded coming out with their own wealth. So God put it in the heart of Cyrus to say to all the people living around the Hebrews, by the way, when these Hebrews get up and go, if you're in their village, you supply whatever they need. He'll even use the enemy to take care of the bills that would come along to fulfilling his will. That's just the way God works. He likes to turn the logic of the world on its head. So the servants are summoned. Your pastors, your elders, your other leaders here in this congregation make an appeal to the family today. Trust us. Trust us. If for no other reason you made us leaders to petition the Lord and receive guidance from him in seasons where there's not a specific Bible verse saying, do this. Discernment is required for your leaders. And some of you are saying, Jeff, just get to the vote. I'm ready to go. I'm going to check yes, hallelujah. Some of you may be reluctant, but let me just say this. If you don't know and the time comes to give your vote here in a little bit, if you don't know in your heart of hearts, if you don't have perfect peace about it, I'm going to say to you, consider the lives of those that have led you. Consider our testimonies. Consider our passion for Christ. Consider the fact that we know we're going to give an account for these decisions and all of them. And recognize this, at some point, you have to trust God, even if you don't trust what you see going on right now. That's just a logical appeal to you. Trust your leader. The Bible even goes so far to command you, obey those that have the oversight over you in times where you're just not sure that uh, imperative is such a help to us. My wife and I, we talk about roles all the time. Amy is a gentle woman. She uh, is still flesh and blood, though. In counseling young ladies over the years, they've, they've said to her when it comes to this area of a woman following her husband and that, that, that S word, submission, which we all cringe at, there have been some ladies that have said to her, yeah, but Amy, you're just naturally submissive. And my wife laughs at them. <laughs> Human beings are not naturally submissive. That's just not in our DNA. The fact of the matter is, is that as I lead my family, and I rely heavily at times on my wife's wisdom, her prophetic insight, she's got discernment that I do not have, but there are times where she has told me, Jeff, I'm glad I'm not the leader in this situation. I'm glad I get to follow you because I wouldn't want to have to answer for having to know what to do in this given situation. Sometimes it's like that in the church. Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know exactly what's up. I don't know exactly all of the answers, but I'm going to trust those whom God has placed over us for our spiritual care and leadership. Verses number five and six, the people are empowered. The people with position were committed. Look in verse number five. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses. Note that, these are the leaders. The houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. So those representatives of the three tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, you had those leaders and those heads. And the Bible says that they rose up. The picture being painted here is they stood up, they stepped out. They said, we are going to do this. You see, up to this very verse, watch it, up to this very verse, only Cyrus was committed. And then the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the scribes, says here, that in that moment, the leaders recognized that God was moving and the leaders said, we will put our hand to this task. It's a beautiful thing. Very different than what we see in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 and then into 14, 
You see 10 leaders that were, excuse me, 12 leaders that were commissioned to go over and spy out the promised land. And there it was, and it was lush, and it was full, and it was beautiful. Yes, there were giants, but there were also grapes. It was a glorious place, and more importantly, it was the place that God had destined his people to go. And so Moses says, I want you boys to go over there, go into the land, walk it up and down, come back and tell me how we're going to conquer it. And so those fellows, 12 of them, went over there, and they spent over a month there, and they walked it up and down, and they came back, and all their assignment was was this, tell Moses how we're going to win the battle. And what they did is they came back and answered a question that they were never called to ask, or that was never asked them. They came back and said, we can't do it. Now, wait a minute. God said, you will do it. You can do it. Go figure out how to do it. And they came back and said, we can't do it except for two fellows. Tell me their names. Joshua and Caleb. And I love what the Bible says about Caleb. Caleb had a different spirit about him. Caleb, by the time they got into the promised land, was an octogenarian. You know what that is? Somebody in their 80s. He was an old dude. I just picture him. You remember the Rocky movies? Remember Mickey? Mickey, the trainer? To me, that's what I see when I see Caleb. Just grizzled, you know, about three quarters of uh, 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 backbone and the rest gristle. I mean, just kind of, and that's the way I see Caleb. And Caleb walked up there and he conquered the hill country. But look at the gap, the gap, 40 years. Why? Because 10 leaders said, we can't do what God said we're to do. Hallelujah. Let me just assure you right now, Meadow, you don't have a single leader, not on the combined elders of Meadow or Cornerstone not among the servant leadership team, not among many of those ministry heads that are now coming into a place where they're leading. You don't have a single person saying, this can't be done. So it's an awesome thing to have a united front in leadership. But look at this. I love, I've been working the whole message to get this part of verse five. The people with uh, with passion were committed. It says in verse five, then rose up the heads of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Do you know what that indicates? That is, it proceeded from Cyrus, whose spirit God had stirred, and it got into the Levites and the the leaders of Judah and Benjamin. They were stirred, and then by the time we get down to the end of verse 5, the stirring had moved from one man through the leaders into the general population, and those would be the people that would say, let's go back to the place of bounty. Let's go back to the place of glory. Let's go back to the promised land. Let's go back to the place of our ancestors. Let's go back and do the work that God has assigned us to do. And so they would be the ones with their hearts stirred all across this congregation. Some, by the way, who were fitful that they couldn't be here today. I got emails from California. I got two people in Scotland, our missionaries, Nathan and Crystal Young, and you gotta be present to have your vote counted today. We let them vote, but we can't count their votes because they're not here. But listen, all around our people that are traveling, they're saying, can we say yes, can we say yes? I said, say it, say it often, say it loud, but we can't vote your, count your vote today. We're it. In this room and in other parts of the building, we're stewarding this. And I pray in the name of Jesus that your heart is stirred. I pray that you don't see this as some business meeting vote. I pray that you don't look at this as saying, well, we're we're not going to be like we once were. We're already not like we once were. We're just talking about ratifying what God is already doing. We're not going to cling to the past. Listen, I thank God for the past. 
I have, this is the only church I've ever been a part of since I've been a Christian. I was saved in 1994, delivered out of drugs and alcohol and a reprobate lifestyle. The guy who led me to the Lord sent me to Meadow Church, Meadow Baptist Church, which was right down the street from my apartment. And I walked in in early September of 1994, and it's the only church I've served in. I was called to preach in this church. I, I had my most powerful encounters in ministry as a member of this church. I was ordained in this church. I was uh, established and brought on staff in 1997 to, be, to serve here with my time and a vocational ministry. I met my wife at this church. My two kids were uh, brought, birthed in this church. They were baptized in this church. I was married in this church. This church has been the context of my whole Christian life. But listen, God has so stirred my spirit to say, I cannot hold hostage the future based on the blessings of the past. There's something more out there. There's greater memories to be made. There's greater works to be done. So I am thankful, thankful for the past. I'm thankful for Meadow Baptist Church. Seasons come. Seasons go. And when one season goes, another one from God comes. And that's where we stand today. We go further into the text. I was supposed to preach short today. Just doesn't work. The people of preparation were committed. Just very quickly again, verse 6. And all who were about them aided them. How did they aid them? They weren't going. I think this primarily refers to Persian neighbors, but it could refer to some of the Hebrews who just didn't want to go, but they didn't want to be left out completely. It says they gave them silver, gold, good, beast, and costly wares besides all that was freely offered. So God was so stirring people and working that even the ones that couldn't make the trip or didn't feel like they should make the trip, they got in on it and they, they, they gave of their substance to make it happen. This is a beautiful thing when God does a work he does it in ways that defy business plans, that defy common logic, common sense. Sometimes God acts unreasonably because his reason is higher than our reason. Amen. But God, watch this. I think this will be up on your screen. God had sovereignly prepared these individuals to be alive and enabled during the time in which he would do this new and great work. He had sovereignly prepared them. I'll go further. He had sovereignly appointed them to be there. And he was going to provide everything they needed. I don't think it's an overstatement to tell you today that you are here. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it from the macrocosmic view to the microcosmic view. I'm bringing it right here. I don't think it's a stretch to say that you are here, here in this assembly for a time such as this that the Lord is entrusting to us corporately, but the corporately is made up of the individuals. So each individual working together in unity, we have a corporate decision to make. And I believe the Lord has you for a time such as this. I believe that as we put our hearts and hands and minds together, beginning with a vote today, but the vote is the easiest part. It's what comes next that is the glorious part. And so you are here not on accident. You're not incidental. If you're an active member of Meadow, you're going to vote here in about 15 minutes, and you're going to say yes or no to what we've laid before you. I believe the Lord will guide our consciences to accomplish his will. You say, Jeff, what are you hoping for? Well, if you really want to know, I, I, I would be thrilled. I'd like to miss like three days of sleep because I'm so excited because it was a unanimous vote. I, I would love to do that. I'd, I'd buy a keg of Kool-Aid and have a party, amen? I mean, we'd just, we'd just go after it. That's what I'm hoping for. 
God's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I pray that today we'll see the beginning of that. Let me get to the last few verses. The captured or consecrated. This is the part that I think speaks pastorally. I read these verses pastorally, and it's interesting because these verses don't really have a whole lot to do with humans. It has to do with the fixtures of the temple, the utensils that were used in all of the ritual worship that took place in the temple. When Nebuchadnezzar came down and ransacked everything, he was marauding and killing and destroying things, but he wasn't a fool. He didn't destroy all of the gold and all of the silver and all of these instruments in the temple. As a matter of fact, they were so intricately made and so beautiful and so precious and costly that he, he apparently tells his soldiers or his generals, don't destroy those things. Let's bring them back up and we'll take these things that, that the, the, the God of the Hebrews, they used to worship him with, we'll bring these utensils, put them in the house of our gods and we'll mock them by worshiping our gods with their utensils. And that's exactly what they did. And so when Cyrus and the Persians came, excuse me, when the Persians came and, and conquered Babylon, and now at the time of the edict, Cyrus is saying, and all of those instruments and those utensils that used to be in the Jewish temple, why don't we release those and let them take them back to where God wanted them to be in the first place? Why don't we send them back to that temple that they're going to rebuild. So there was in verse seven, what I call a reacquisition of the holy vessels. I'm not gonna read all the verses, but basically in verse seven, it simply tells us that the king took back what had earlier been captured by Israel's enemy. Now, my friends, this may be a season that has got a lot more to do with you as an individual than you think. This may be a season as God is clearly moving corporately in what he's doing between two churches becoming one. But remember, the corporate body is made up in, as individuals. And I'm just going to be bold here. Some of you have lost too much to the enemy, and it's not been reclaimed. This may be a season for many in this assembly to reacquire what the enemy put his hands on and took and used for fallen purposes. Maybe God is stirring corporately and part of that reason is this, because he cares about you individually and you've lived too long in captivity. You've been a slave too long. You've been away from the place of promise too long. You've been in the darkness too long. You've been in the deafened prayers for too long. You've been in the muted praise for too long that God doesn't want you there anymore. And so although you may not sense him stirring in your heart, you can't deny he's stirring around you. I'm gonna promise you something. When God stirs, enough, uh, stir, stirs long enough around you and you're open, he's eventually gonna stir within you. There's something awesome about praise that is contagious and joy that is contagious. I understand murmuring and criticizing and negativity. We understand that's contagious too, but I'm going to tell you, greater is he that lives in us than the one that is living and acting in the world today. So they reacquired all these holy vessels, but watch this. Not only were they reacquired, but they were recounted. Now, it's, it's kind of some innocuous verses, 8, 9, and 10, I mean this reverently, they're a little boring as far as we would see because it's just saying you got this many gold bowls, this many gold basins, silver, and so on. But here's the point. Why is that in the Bible? I believe that God didn't just throw something in because it wasn't important to him. What are we to learn? The things that were written aforetime are, learn, are given for our learning. So this is what I see. That though they were in captivity, though they were shut up and being used in a, in a false place of worship, though at this time they might have even been in storage, forgotten about, 
God knew exactly where they were. He knew how many of them there were. And when it came time to put them back in, it was individually. He looked at every single one of them and they were counted. What does that mean to me and you? It simply tells me this, that there's nobody that needs to be left out. There's nobody that's insignificant. There's nobody that he's forgotten about. The Bible tells us that so precious are you and I to the Lord that he knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows the measure of our days. He bottles every one of our tears. He knows what he is doing in our life at times where you and I don't have a clue. Why? Because in his omniscience, he always has his eye on you. I I don't want to reduce the magnitude of the love of God. The love of God is immense, immeasurable, exceedingly broad. His love for you and his grace for you abounds higher than your sin, child of God. That means if you've been shut up in the storeroom, if you've been forgotten about, if you've been spending time in the house of false gods, if you've been living in the darkness, then when God begins to stir, part of the reason is, is because he's recounting all of those that have been on the wayside and he's reacquiring. And this is an awesome time for people to be rededicating their lives to Jesus. Let me just speak. We'll take off the pastor's hat, put on the prophet's cap for a moment. We are on the back end of the age, brothers and sisters. We're not at the beginning of it. We're on the back end of the age. Open your eyes and look around. Read the scriptures and then look at the world around you. We're in the back end of the age. Jesus isn't up there twiddling his thumbs. I mean, if I can picture it in the way I picture things sometimes, the white horses and the horses, the army, angel armies are now being groomed and shooed for the journey coming from heaven back to earth. They're in the gate and they're about to be let loose in the church while lions are devouring the land. We're hunting mice. That's Leonard Ravenhill's statement. Brothers and sisters, we're at the end of the age, and if there was ever a time for all of us, I'm talking to Christians here, to get right, to get ready, to get real, and to get in on what God's doing, this is the accepted time. And so what does he do? Verse 11, and hallelujah, I'm out of verses, and we're going to move to put some shoe leather on this sermon, a recommissioning of the holy vessels. It wasn't enough just that they got them out of the storage and counted them. God said, we got to use these. All these did big name, Shesh Bazaar. Some of you are expecting children, avoid that name. (laughs) All of these did he bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The vessels were now headed back to where they belonged and for their intended use. As I close this message today, and I welcome Pastor Dustin to come up here in just a moment. He's going to facilitate the vote. We could spend months, years uninterrupted talking about everything that's wrong with the church in America. Friends, those things will be duly noted, but I'm going to tell you, it doesn't take much of an individual to sit around and point out what is wrong. I want to be part of the solution. I want this assembly to stand as a beacon, a lighthouse, no longer defined by denominational norms. But by the way, why do we need denominational definitions if we're defined by the New Testament? So if we cherish a denominational affiliation, and that becomes a stumbling block. I'm going to say, you don't need that. 
You're defined by who Jesus Christ is and what is said of him and of you in the New Testament. I want us to be a beacon in this community. We need to resonate from here or reverberate from here that we're saying to our community, both unbeliever and believer alike, that our loyalty and our allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ and there is no second place. He is unique and peerless in that place of our loyalty and allegiance. But because of that, we will love each other as Christ has commanded us to love each other. We will love each other where we see an agreement and we will love each other in spite of our differences. We will walk together for the unified common purpose of making disciples unto Jesus Christ and advancing the gospel in our community. We want to see just beyond preaching and teaching, we want to see the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit where eyes that are blind see and ears that are deaf hear and limbs that are broken will walk. We want to see even to the extent of miraculous regeneration of body parts. Listen, I'm telling you, what I see in my New Testament has not been cut off from us today. We serve a God who is able and one who is looking to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose hearts are inclined to him. Give him praise this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus.